This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today, David Raha Hedti Webb, was born in southwest Florida and grew up on Sanibel Island, which puts him in a relatively small group of people compared to this area's current population. But his family roots go back for generations, and their connections to life on Sanibel are both broad and deep. His pioneer side goes back eight generations on Sanibel Island, and his Seminole side goes back past recorded history. His direct ancestors were Spanish Seminole members of the Sanibel Island Rancho. Ranchos were small, tight-knit communities settled by Europeans centuries ago. They were essentially fishing camps with as many as 600 residents, most of which were Seminole. Members of his family were among the first documented births in southern Florida and the first known on Sanibel. They were taken to Cuba for baptisms, and David found those records for his new book, The Spanish Seminole, The Untold History of the Spanish Indians as Shared by a descendant. And David's a fourth-generation Ding Darling employee. His great-grandfather was the first refuge employee. The admin building was dedicated to his grandmother, who worked there for 33 years. His mother worked there when she was pregnant with him, and he worked there while serving in AmeriCorps in the mid-1990s. And he's got deep roots here at Florida Gulf Coast University, where he graduated 20 years ago. David even carved out the first nature trails on campus back when he could just go out with his own chainsaw with fat faculty guidance, of course. David Raha Hedti Webb returns to campus tomorrow. That's Tuesday, January 23rd at 7 p.m. to give a talk about his new book. It's free and open to the public, so we sat down with him last week to get a bit of a preview. Let's hear that now. David, welcome to Gulf Coast Life. Thank you. So I know a guy who's a sixth generation Astero in, which around here is almost unthinkably, you know, that's so rare to be even six generations. You're eighth generation Sanibel. Did you grow up with full knowledge of your family's deep roots? I did. Um, and, and I like to point out that I'm eighth generation on the pioneer side, um, on the Seminole side from, from the island. We go back perhaps to time immemorial. Uh, but but we knew we had deep roots there. Um, some of the places on Sanibel are named after my, my direct ancestors and the islands around it. Uh, for instance, can you give us some examples of that? Yeah. Um, so, so Bowman's Beach is, is named after my mom's great uncle. Um, Buck Key, which is a little island next to Captiva, is named after my great-great-grandfather. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's a few more. Uh, um we, we lived in Wolfert Point. We had connections with that family. My mother's godfather was uh, Sam Bailey, uh, who owned Bailey's General Store. Um, and, and my great-grandfather's stepfather was the lighthouse keeper. And we have a lot of family stories about the island going back forever. <laughs> that is awesome. Was that something that you kind of wore on your sleeve as a kid, or was that something you kept to yourself? I was always proud of being a native Floridian and knowing that my family went back that long. In fact, um, we go back further just being in Florida um, on the on the pioneer side anyway, going back nine or ten generations. And when you follow the branches back far enough, I have uh, family that were part of the early um, Spanish settlers in St. Augustine. I have um, uh, Anglo-American ancestors who came down into West, actually East Florida after uh, the United States took it over and went back. And so, so we have uh, roots all over the place, but being a native from Sanibel Island is, is very rare. And so, yeah, we were always very proud of that. 
You've kind of touched on it with that answer to that last question, but can you just kind of break down for listeners your familial roots on both sides? Um, you know, the overview, yeah. if you will. Yeah, well, thanks for asking. It's actually a really uh, confusing topic for some people, so I don't always go into it. But um, the reason for that is because my father's Native American. Um, he's a, a member of the Tuscarora Nation of North Carolina, and he's also Maharan Indian. And those are two Native American communities in eastern North Carolina. Uh, my mother is uh, a descendant of the Spanish Indians, or as I like to say, the Spanish Seminole. Uh, so I don't really tell people that I am a Seminole descendant because it just gets confusing for them. But uh, I have Native ancestry on both sides, and I'm actually enrolled with the Tuscarora Nation. So from what you've sent me and what I've been reading, I understand that your ancestors were among the first documented, documented births in southern Florida and the first known on Sanibel. Can you explain, you know, how that, you know, is known? Are there records of that? You know, let's get into some of the research that you've done. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking. So building upon uh, earlier research, there there's some uh, really good research by John Wirth. Uh, I, I overlapped with him briefly at the University of Florida uh, when I worked at the Florida Museum of Natural History. And he really started delving into a lot of these um, documents in, in Cuba. And um, that was really exciting because I knew my family had roots that, that were connected with these communities just from family oral history. But we didn't know specifically that that it was uh, to this extent. Um, so one day I was just kind of looking through. Uh, I like to do you know family research, and I was just looking through some records online, and I decided to search for one of my direct ancestors. His name was Juan Montes de Oca, and um, I knew that he spent his life working as a, a translator for the army. Uh, that, that he translated um, Seminole, the Creek Seminole language and the Miccosukee language, uh, working with the army. And I knew that his wife was Seminole and he was allegedly Spanish, according, according to family history. Um, diving into this, it, it, it really changed that. Um, I, I found his name on a petition after, you know, I can explain more about this later, but uh, our family was actually captured by the army and imprisoned. Um, and Digging a little bit deeper, I ended up coming across the baptism records, which are uh, thankfully archived online. And I read through and translated. I can speak Spanish at a relatively well uh, level and read it. So I read through all these hundreds of pages of baptism records, and I, I built this huge database of every Spanish Indian or Spanish Seminole I could find, um, and particularly my family was on Sanibel. Um, the first recorded baptisms that that I know of and that I, I can seem to find um, on the island, and they were they were Spanish Indian or Spanish Seminole children that were taken down to Cuba for baptism and quite extensively documented. So the records that you found, they were the, this was these this was a database of of baptisms um, in Cuba way back when. Yeah, the records I found, um, they're they're just photographs of pages of. Uh, you know, 200 year plus books. Um, so these these were logs kept by the priest at a church in Regla, Cuba, which is a, um, sort of a little suburb of, of Havana or a little district within Havana. And this was the place where all of the the what people typically think of as the 
Cuban fishermen, which which is something that my research really disproved. Uh, but that was the port they were based out of. So there was a church there where a lot of people of color were baptized. Um, and today it's actually a, a holy site for um, practitioners of the Santeria faith in Cuba. But all of the Spanish Indian children were brought down there and logged in this book. So typical of a baptism record, their ecclesiastical records, um, a lot of that kind of language in there. But it, it gave the name of the child. It gave the name of the, the father, the mother, the godparents, and then some anecdotal information. Um, uh, it, it said where both parents were born, where the child was born, um, where the, the involvement in the godparents and, and if they needed translators. So that really helped to indicate to me, tracing my family back directly to uh, Seminole towns located up in the panhandle of Florida. Um, it enabled me to really get a, a good grasp on the migrations of, of uh, the ancestors of Seminole and Miccosukee people that came down along the coast before others came in along the peninsula or through the peninsula. And it, it really allowed me to um, really map out through time and, and through all of these different families, how they were related, what towns they came from. And even uh, among my own family members, several of my family members are listed in, this bap in these baptism records. And uh, I can tell who speaks the Seminole you know, language that they're using, whether Creek or Miccosukee, and who, you know, who translated for themselves and um, who needed a translator, et cetera. Wow, that is fascinating. And I would like to think that some of the people who kept those rep records so meticulously would <clears throat> love the fact that they were still being looked at and talked about today. I love to think of that, yeah. Hmm. So uh, what were ranchos? Uh, explain what that term means in this context and about the one that I understand was on Sanibel. Yeah, yeah, good question. Uh, so ranchos were uh, some of the first European uh, uh, sites of settlement, and but it's, it's incredibly nuanced. So the ranchos were essentially first um, – little fishing camps and they were seasonal fishing camps. And uh, through my research, I was able to trace a number of the, the men in these baptism records back to countries all across Latin America. At the time they were, they were colonies. So uh, a number of men started to stay on these islands and they started to marry into the Seminole women that were um, affiliated with them. So essentially the ranchos consisted at their peak of about 600 individuals, and the vast majority of them were actually seminal. It was pretty well documented that, you know, for every one man, there were zero European women. Um, all of the women there were, were indigenous, and the men were having families with these women without recognized marriages by the church, which is really interesting because they were marrying these women on the barrier islands of Sanibel, Captiva, Caya Costa, um, Fort Myers Beach, what, what's today Fort Myers Beach, all the way up into Tampa Bay. And so among these fisheries, uh, these little fishing camps, they ended up becoming permanent little towns. And uh, some of the families in there had, had mixed blood lineage. And what's interesting is because there were so few Europeans, it was documented that uh, some of the kids were actually a quarter European because they had married back into the 
indigenous population over the course of generations. And these ranchos lasted uh, a couple hundred years. Hmm. Uh, where would uh, the one on Sanibel have been? Do you know geographically where it was? Yeah. Um, so the, the rancho on Sanibel was actually located inside of Tarpon Bay. And <clears throat> that's a little <clears throat> sort of a little nook on the map. If you look at Sanibel, right on the north side of Sanibel, there's sort of a little a little bay there. That's Tarpon Bay. It's a nice little shelter, you know, when storms come along. If you have a boat, you need to stow away. Some interesting things about Tarpon Bay. Um, my family, my, my grandfather, at the end of this book, my grandfather, uh, Lamar or Marty Stokes, he, uh, he's a uh, Spanish Indian, Spanish Seminole descendant. Uh, he grew up on Sanibel Island. He was born in St. James City, right across the Pine Island Sound, you know, on, on Pine Island. Uh, he grew up right there on um, Tarpon Bay, and they, they were commercial fishermen the same way the Spanish Indians were. So he was living the same lifestyle that his ancestors had for perhaps thousands of years. We don't know for sure if uh, uh, how much lineage the, the Spanish Indians or Spanish Seminoles had that go back to the Calusa. Um, there's a lot of evidence for that that I share in my research. Uh, so, you know, potentially our family could have gone back you know, 13,000 years just, just in that little area. Wow. You've, uh, you just mentioned your book. It's called The Spanish Seminole, The Untold History of the Spanish Indians as Shared by a Descendant. Uh, describe, you've I kind of already told us, but, you know, explain what it covers, the scope of the story that you tell in it. Yeah. Um, so the book starts out with, with a lot of background. I used, as an indigenous person myself, I used a mixture of research methodologies. So of course, I used uh, traditional academic research methodologies <clears throat> where every source is cited. You know, I have I have uh, documentation to back up every claim in the book. And then I also used indigenous methodologies, which which for our communities is a really important uh, approach. And so you'll see references in there to oral histories directly from Seminole and Miccosukee elders talking about stories that go back to um, the Spanish Indians and stories that go back to adopting in uh, Calusa that remained in the area, things that I had to get permission to share because they're not readily accessible to the public. And so there's a different approach in that and making sure that I'm valuing our, um, you know, what's important to us as indigenous people, which is, which is uh, you know, sharing what's allowed to be shared. So there's a lot of additional information that's even not included in this book because it's it's history that I was told not to share. I have a lot of friends in the the Seminole and Miccosukee communities here in Southern Florida, and and they were very helpful to me. I also have some some linguist friends that that helped me out, and friends out actually in the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma that that helped me. Um, and and I made sure that throughout this book that I used terms that were. Uh, really correct for us. So it's written from an indigenous perspective and um, historically accurate. At the same time, it it uses terms um, like Istijadi, for instance, rather than saying Creek or Seminole in some instances. That can be really confusing if you if you understand the history of the people. So so using terms that that make sense to us and that I can easily translate for the the non-native reader. But I go through history and, and outline the culture of the Spanish Indians and the Seminole and Miccosukee people that, that they were really part of. Their communities were fluid with the mainland bands of Seminoles and Miccosukees. 
and um, going all the way down through history, following not just my family, but but the entire communities of of uh, Spanish Indians and the impacts in the Seminole Wars, uh, the Civil War, and following my own ancestors after the Civil War back to Sanibel. You mentioned that you had uh, ancestors who were captured by the army during the Seminole Wars. What's the sort of short version of that story? <laughs> yeah, um, you, you can tell this is something I'm excited about because I love talking about it. No, bring um, it. Yeah, bring it. This is great. I'm learning so great. much. I love local history, and this is like straight to the main vein. <laughs> Good, a fellow nerd. Love it. Um, yeah, so so my ancestor Juan and and his wife Mary, um, her her maiden name was Mary Johns. Um, they she was she was Seminole. It's questionable whether he came from the ranchos. You know, he grew up speaking Seminole and Miccosukee language and, and was a translator all of his life until he died. Um, and so they were very deeply rooted in the ranchos and number of relatives in different ranchos up and down the coast. And um, after 1836, there was an attack on the ranchos, the little little uh, complex history there in the story. So I'll skip over it. But the Americans came into Florida around that t a little prior to that time and we're really trying to get a hold on the ranchos they wanted to tap into that revenue that uh, was potential there in terms of of uh, duties and taxes because the spanish indians were importing thousands of pounds of fish um, eight hundred thousand pounds or 400 tons of fish a year were being uh, exported out of southwest florida into cuba and so, um, you know, if you look at the history with the fur trade and the deerskin trade, these are really important parts of colonial history and early American history. And these fisheries, I argue in my book, were, were just as important for our region as those, those other two um, industries that were native centered. So eventually the, the Spanish Indians were always supplying arms uh, from the Spanish uh, via the Cubans. Um, to the Seminoles for the resistance. So the, the ongoing long Seminole War was really a resistance of, of defending, you know, Seminole homeland. And the Spanish Indians were, were part of those communities. So the army um, uh, ended up rounding up on one day, they went to one of the ranchos, rounded up uh, my own family among others and imprisoned them at Fort Brooke in Tampa Bay. And um, I can go back to a petition that has my ancestor and his brother in it, among others, uh, that are in the baptism records even. And this record, there were a couple of white men that at that time, uh, uh, sort of Anglo-Americans, that had come down into South Florida and they were uh, sort of proprietors for the ranchos. They realized they were profitable. So these uh, Anglo-Americans actually wrote a petition on behalf of a group of Spanish Indians petitioning for them to stay. And, and really for them, this was for them to continue operating <laughs> their businesses. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, for us, you know, for my ancestors, it was it was really their lives. Um, and they plead in this in this petition, you know, all the reasons why they should they should stay in Florida and not be sent out to Oklahoma, which is the Seminole Trail of Tears. Um, and there were hundreds of their community members that were documented being sent out in chains on boats in really, really horrible conditions, um, many dying along the way. So my ancestors, I'm, I'm grateful to be here because of them. <laughs> and uh, 
um, they were lucky that they got to stay in, in Florida. You even have family roots that cross paths with the, the well-known Florida novel by Patrick Smith, A Land Remembered, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so Juan Montes de Oca and Mary um, had a number of, of sons. And one of their sons, his name was Manuel, but he went by the name Canoe, which is interesting. But he was uh, my direct ancestor. And him and his brother, Johnny, um, who went by Johnny Johns, actually, which is Johns is a, a seminal surname from from up um, in central Florida, the Brighton Reservation, mostly. But they actually moved out out to that area um, adjacent to and where the Brighton Reservation is now, um, all the way between there and, and Lake Kissimmee. And they were cattle ranchers and they were some of the, the first uh, cattle ranchers. So here you have mixed blood, you know, Seminoles. Uh, starting these big cattle ranches. And um, another interesting part of that is, is uh, the Seminole tribe of Florida has a pretty healthy cattle industry. And uh, the gentleman who helped start that, the, the Seminole tribe credits him with helping to start this industry. His name, um, he was actually a, a Montes de Oca as well. And, and a cousin of, of my family, you know, within my family, a cousin from central Florida. So, uh, uh, Montes de Oca, one of my family members, ended up helping the Seminole tribe, you know, circling back, starting their cattle industry. Um, we'll get in. This this question will make sense in a second because we're going to get into it. But what is your first memory of uh, uh, J.N. Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge? Wow, good question. Um, I I don't know if I really have a first memory because I when growing up I was actually called the refuge kid. <laughs> it was kind of a a joke among the staff at the refuge. My grandmother worked there for 33 years. My mother worked there when she was pregnant with me. Uh, and then later in life, she worked there. Uh, my great grandfather was the first employee at Ding Darling. Um, so I'm, I'm a fourth generation Ding Darling employee myself. I worked there too. Uh, but I do remember as a kid, go an early memory, memory going to the lighthouse. Um, and it's really sad, you know, that these buildings have been destroyed. But uh, the refuge headquarters used to be in those those uh, old lighthouse keeper houses where my family actually lived a couple generations ago. Uh, but I went there and I saw my grandmother in her office and um, we went up to the top of the lighthouse. Um, my father carried me up. I remember that pretty memorable moment. But um, I'd say that's my first one technically of Ding Darling. <laughs> mm, that is so great. Um, I this is going to be an awkward question or a hard question, but, you know, I'm presuming you followed Hurricane Ian from afar. What was it like to watch it, you know, literally hit Sanibel? Honestly, um, it was it was devastating for me. Uh, I, I have, you know, a different point of view on things from from uh, kind of the long <laughs> the long view that my family had been through very similar hurricanes. It was it was sort of like seeing horror stories that were passed down in my family in, in real time. And I was almost addicted, you know, to, to local Southwest Florida news. I was streaming it on YouTube, on my television, you know, throughout the entire storm and the next morning. So seeing everything unfold in real time. Um, but it, the house I uh, grew up in off and on, I lived with my grandmother growing up back and forth um, when my parents moved to the mainland. It was the house I lived in until I was uh, off and on until I was five as well. Um, but it was completely demolished by by the hurricane. There's there's no trace of it left. 
Um, and so a lot of places there that are very special to me uh, are gone now. And, and that's tough. And at the same time, I have this sort of, I guess, continence from being an old time Sanibel family and knowing that this is a cycle of things that happen. You know, you look at old pictures of the island, old family pictures even, and and there are hardly any trees back back when they first started taking pictures. And that's because, you know, these storms are a normal part of a barrier island's life. So so that puts it in perspective for me a little bit also as an environmental uh, scientist myself. But but at the same time, it, it's it's beyond heartbreaking. Um, last question. You said, um, okay, T- Tuscarora is the, you're a member of the Tuscarora Nation in North Carolina, and that's also the language, right? Correct. So in yes. your emails, you, you, will, you will sprinkle that in as salutations or as, you know, saying goodbye or things like that. A, do you speak that language? Like that's a language that you speak fluently? I, so fluent is is a very difficult term because there are very few fluent Tuscarora speakers yeah, sure, sure. um but i i speak at a lower to moderate level so within my own community i am uh, among some of the better speakers of the language but i i tend to within our our ceremonies and our other activities i tend to uh be one who's asked to share you know the prayers in our language and, and openings in our language um, I like to introduce myself in, in my language as well. Uh, and so in, in my emails, you know, I, I use my Tuscarora name, which is a, an important part of our identity to use that because we are a living people. We are a living culture and, and a living language. And it's important, you know, for people to know that, that we're still here. Um, but I do like to include those in my emails. Like sometimes I'll include at the bottom like Nyawa, which means um, thank you. Or esketket, which means uh, we'll talk again soon. <laughs> hmm. How'd you say thank you again? Nyawa. Nyawa to my guest, David Raha Hedti Webb. He's an educator, historian, and environmental scientist and author of the new book, The Spanish Seminole, The Untold History of the Spanish Indians as Shared by a Descendant. David, thank you so much for your time. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can cross paths when you're in town. Thank you, Mike. David is giving a talk tomorrow, Tuesday, January 23rd at Florida Gulf Coast University. It's free and open to anyone. It starts with a reception at 6.30 p.m. with his talk beginning at 7. You can find details on our website, wgcu.org gcl. If you missed any of the show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website or wherever you find podcasts. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director today is Jared Gonzalez, our social media coordinator is Tara Callaghan. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM. We are NPR for Southwest Florida.